This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Gents, we've got some things going on. I am curious what's caught your eye. I'm going to defer to Eric. Well, you know, I'd like to talk about a different topic, but I have to talk about, I think, the most important sporting event going on right now, which is, of course, the Women's World Cup. And, um, you know, I think it would be disrespectful not to talk about how impressive the team has been. Uh, yesterday's game, they beat England 2-1. to one. Uh, they're not one, argue one of their best one or two players, Megan Rapino, was not able to play because of a slight tightness in her hamstring, which was interesting because she didn't start the game and everyone was like, well, what's happened? Like, why isn't she playing? And they only found out after the game. The reason they didn't want to say anything, actually you would enjoy this, was because they wanted to let people know they didn't want to provide information to the other team in case it went to like penalty kicks or something like that, that she wasn't available because it could actually change the strategy. Um, and the U.S. is going to be playing the winner of, I think it's Sweden and the Netherlands on Sunday. And shockingly to me, and I'd love your thoughts on this, given the randomness in soccer, the U.S. team right now is minus 600. Now, to me, that seems extraordinary for a sport that, as we've talked about, and actually one of the things while I was away the last two weeks, I was in London at the Wharton Forum, of which I held a panel on analytics, and there was a football soccer guy there. And he is a mathematician. He talked entirely about the randomness of soccer. Right. So you can't imagine that. How is it possible is that it you get a minus 600? That you're a minus 600. Which for our 600. listeners puts you approximately one in six. One in seven is the technical odds payoff, but there's an over round, so just call it about a one in six. So take that to probabilities, please. So in probabilities, the American chance of winning is around 85%, I'd say 82 to 85%. And that seems to me to be an extraordinarily high number. Again, also, you know, I'm not going to talk about momentum here, but you are facing another team that's also that's won also four, that's also right? won four or five straight what, games. What, what do we know about those teams? And Before the tournament started, what did people think of those teams? I, I I think everyone thought that the U.S. had the much tougher half of the draw. Oh, if you would like. have to get okay. well, France we had to beat England. France, who was the home team, England, who was another top five rated team, and so I'm not saying Sweden and the Netherlands aren't good, but you're asking the right question, which is if we started the tournament again and the U.S. was playing Sweden or the Netherlands, what would have been the odds? I, this is a question for both of you. Don't you think, though, that those I understand if they should it's the converge first game. They because, should converge because, we because of the information we information now have. information about the better teams. One would argue that this is simply a mispricing. I mean, we've seen this before in the odds markets. They're not perfect. And, in fact, they tend to follow the public. Maybe the public loves the United States so much the that the – Tend to like favorites. It tends to, and and if you have to also the, think, I mean, the better known team. It's interesting. I mean, we're starting to develop a pretty significant betting market in the United States now that betting has been legalized across the country, or at least turned to the states to legalize as they wish. But in Europe, gambling has been gigantic forever. So I wanted to ask you guys who have just returned from Europe, what do they think of the Women's World Cup? Are they betting on it, thinking about it, talking about it? 
I was in Italy and no one was paying any attention. I had dinner one night. Yeah. They were doing a replay of the Italy. Italy was playing China, maybe, and it was it, they played that afternoon. But I was in the restaurant and they had it on a big screen, and it was delayed. All right, so I don't right. want to read too much into it. But no one was paying any attention to it, and certainly no one was paying attention to non-Italy, at least in the small little places I ran around. Well, I can tell you. So the only reason I have some knowledge of that specific question is, uh, again, I ran a panel at the Wharton Forum. The two people on it, one was the guy I just mentioned. His name is Rasmus Ankerson, who runs football uh, using analytics for one team in Denmark and one team in uh, England. The other person on the team was Richard Flint, the CEO and chairman of Skybet, which is the largest betting Mm -hmm. site in England and in Europe. And so a lot of the questions I asked him had to do with what do they use analytics for? Great question. And surprising, I'd love to hear the answer to that. Well, it was quite <laughs> surprising to me. He said they use it for lots of things. So, so Let me just be clear also. Sentence, of well, I want to say two things about what he said. I'll say the first one, which is not surprising. They actually obviously set betting lines. Mm-hmm. They actually, unlike Las Vegas betting sites or betting casinos that offload their bets... In other words, if there's a million dollar placed on one side, they'll offset it on the other side. This company does not do that. Takes position. They will take positions. Okay, they're gamblers. Based on their mathematical models. And again, this is not you know the Bradlow company. Skybet just got acquired by Stars, which is Poker Stars' parent company, for something like forty billion dollars. This is a they're, large they're, company. It's a great idea. I mean, being a gambler with inside information, and what Correct. I mean by inside information is seeing the book. Correct. A- and having the vig on your side is that's just called money making. Right. And so that's what <laughs> that was the one thing he said. The second thing he said, which was fascinating, the number one use of analytics, and I know Cade I'm putting up people Cade putting on his people analytics hat here for a second was to assess problem gamblers based on the betting patterns. Because they feel in England it's a they don't want to get in trouble as being seen as a socially irresponsible company. So the number one utilization of analytics right now is to study people's betting patterns and seeing, you know, I called it in my research with your colleague Dylan Small, clumpy consumption or binge consumption. They call it the hot hand or irregular betting patterns. They use that their number one use right now is to flag betters and right. then to put constraints on the betters based on their betting patterns. Eric, I don't know this guy, and I don't know that company, but I'm a little skeptical that they have such pure motives. I'm just telling you what he said. Undoubtedly. (laughs) Undoubtedly. He he could have answered a thousand different things. That's a fantastic public answer. I mean, that is that's It's a great, great. answer. And I have to say, they Again, don't... I don't know him. Kate, yeah. Kate, you're probably right. They don't have pure motives. On the other hand, they do have to feel it is a, an endeavor that they should probably have a public face to that they're show, developing to try to prevent. Gambling is a can be a tremendously fun thing to do. I love it. It's an analytical thing to do. Many people do it as an entertaining thing to do. And... But there are people who get who get addicted to it and destroy their lives, and of course, it's come in our family. It's it's come a little too close to home. So, so of course, that's true. But I, it's just these guys. It would be, and, and in some sense, it's in the industry's best interest to do such a thing. We certainly haven't seen any indication of it over here. Now they're further along the growth curve of the industry, so maybe that's something they've gotten to. But you can almost think of it as a public goods problem. It may be in the industry's best interest to do that, but any given firm has a private incentive to just exploit those people. Right. So, and moreover, we know that some of these one of the main things that all books do, not just Skybet, but all books are interested in identifying shark money essentially and so they're trying to know who's shark money and who's not and 
a lot of books, unfortunately, kick out sharp money. Well, I was just about to comment. That was the second thing. He, the yeah. third thing he said they use it for. So they absolutely use their mathematical models and algorithms to identify the sharp money. And they absolutely prevent those people from placing bets. Okay, then what, then what, what are they? That's just so not okay. It's not okay. So here's the well, interesting thing about sharp money, because sharp money can be used by a, a book who is simply trying to make the percentage to help them set the line. That's exactly right. And, 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 and you should talk about that. By the way, so, were you guys there? I, I are you sure there. the two of you guys were there? I'm a follower of Rufus Peabody. He tells me everything. No, but I'm just saying, know. you guys have now talked about every single topic he right. talked about in the panel, and the use of sharp money. In some cases, they use them to help them set the to line. To set the line. But the problem with them is, as you described earlier, is if they're position gamblers, then they can't have sharp money because they're simply letting the sharp money cut into their line, and right. that's that hurts their investment. So one would argue well, that... Well, they talked... By the way, he did talk about how they sometimes move or not move the line right. based on the sharp money. All I'm commenting is, I don't know, obviously we don't want to spend the entire show on so I'm commenting... You asked about betting. The guy, well, with the I'm guy gonna, that's the CEO of the largest company in, in England. But I want to talk about these. Exact I want to talk topics. about soccer because one of the conversations we had on the air last week, which is which is following up an assignment I gave to my students for in preparation for our Moneyball program, our academy, is go to each sport and ask which is the major, the chief accomplishment, the mo- most important accomplishment of analytics in that sport. We were able to rattle off baseball easily. Basketball is probably even easier. Football was a little bit of a conundrum, although we, we got the answer to that. And uh, I'll actually so turn on, to you So real quick, this was, a, this was an academy? You're not doing the academy yet. This uh, was we're an... starting. No, Shane and I had a conversation on the air. Oh, this just, is Shane. Just, just to discuss whether or not, you know, which sport do we think is the single most important contribution of analytics to that sport. Great question. And uh, we went through baseball, and basketball is pretty easy. Football... It was a little bit of a of a of a split because mo- the answer that I got from Shane, which is what I would have thought, was the fourth down decision making. First I thing mean, that the, came to my the mind. The Romer paper has been out forever, right Going now. Going forward on fourth down, we, we could say better drafting. You know, Kate Massey, and but that doesn't seem right because they don't seem to be changing their behaviors. And the answer that we got from from our guests, in fact, was passing, 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 more passing. Is and the analytics have discovered that passing is better just about in every situation. By the way, I, I don't know how analytics driven that development. That, has exactly, been. I'm not sure it's I analytics. Think the analytics have kind of followed the evolution of that. By the way, I did ask Richard Flint and this guy then, Rasmus Ankerson what was the future in soccer. And so that was the question. I did we, ask we, we didn't ask. We didn't have any answer. What is soccer? Well, I'll tell what you, has analytics I'll, done I'll for tell soccer? You, I'll tell you what he answered, both present and future. For the present, he talked about player valuation. Well, that we knew. We suspected, but that's so, all I'm under t- the table. I know, right? he, he, but that's what he said. Then he said, for the future... He said, it's all about now motion tracking, motion, yeah. doing it at large scale, using artificial intelligence and other things. And he said, it's also, in fact, we even had a guest on, I don't remember the person's name, who talked about the amount of, like, it. it's about, he also talked about the advanced metrics. Like, it's not just about goals and shots anymore. Matter of fact, it's, for example, the example he gave was Lionel Messi, who may not score in a game, but he creates so much space around him because, you know, you have to double team him, and therefore, so he says. There, it's almost. Like, in fact, he used this exact example, and I, I was listening. I, was, I thought I was hearing Adi Weiner's voice. <laughs> he talked about, you know, how hard it is to measure defense in baseball. Yeah. He gave that example, and he said, "That's our challenge in soccer." 
It's got to be harder. So he, but I'm saying he literally yep. gave the analogy of the defense in so baseball. So I know this is happening, but I think this is a future accomplishment, and this is the groundwork is being laid. And if there's anything being done, we're not seeing it yet publicly. I think that's something that's coming. It hasn't happened yet. So the only answer I got I actually got uh, you know someone on Twitter um, responded and said they, they, to an article um, essentially talking about how they've realized that long shots really have no value, and that you really have to. You mean long shots and goal on goal just yeah. don't contribute yep. anything, and then you should take. Uh, should save your shots for for closer. He fed you a stats bomb he article did, yeah. about that, and we're going to have the founder of Stats Bomb on the show in just fifteen minutes. So we're going to have more soccer and more soccer analytics here at the bottom of the hour, gentlemen. There's been a few something like three billion dollars in contract changes in the NBA free agent market oh on, in the opening day. Someone added it so, up. So, yep. <laughs> I mean, it's been an earth shaking in terms of basketball couple of days so what's your take so far so thanks to our producer matt datz who gave us kind of the rundown of each team i've come up with my scorecard for each team you have i have excellent can we start with the new york teams we can <laughs> As a matter of fact so I'll, I'll start well we have to start with the team that gained the most which is the brooklyn nets oh it's unbelievable and the nets i mean you guys are, well you're a new yorker eric i am a new yorker the, the nets are a non-existent team relative to the knicks and Not- the knicks are done Right. So let me just, in the just minds to, of the public, just to it? remind everybody who the Nets added. Um, Kevin Durant, not oh, a bad ooh. place to start. <laughs> Kyrie Irving, not a second uh, okay. bad place to start. And a third person who's going to be overlooked, who's also not a yeah. bad place to start, is DeAndre Jordan. So, I mean, you've added those three players to a team that won 42 games. That I mean, the Sixers played them in the playoffs, you remember. Nobody wanted to play the Brooklyn Nets at the end of last season. Nobody. The, six, the Nets made it their way to it was, it was tight at the bottom. They made it to the sixth seed. So we're talking about a six-seeded team that lost nobody. Now, of course, Durant's going to be out for next season, probably, right. most of the season, if not all of it. But they added Kyrie Irving, DeAndre Jordan, and Kevin Durant to the six-seeded team in the East that team it's good fun. It's so those, those guys are have, they're a little analytics forward as well. They're they're good are they? on that front. Or are they just robbers? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. They're they've been analytics savvy for a little while and they play their their style of play is that way. I think they're ahead on sports science. They're they're known as being a little bit forward that way. No, I should and say honestly, they did lose one player. They lost D'Angelo Russell. Back to who the was, Warriors. I know, back to the Warriors, who was one of their best players. Yeah. But, you know, I think You'd rather have Kyrie Irving than D'Angelo Russell, so I'm not too worried. You guys are New York guys. I mean, when they built that stadium and moved them from Jersey to Brooklyn, that was very splashy, big move. And then they just haven't been that competitive since. They they got there on the wrong side of that Celtics trade, which is going to set them back for like I don't know ten years. You summarized it. But then, given that now they've had this three or four year rebuild. And they've got all these pieces in place. I mean, why not be more excited? I, I would like to hear how the community and how the world feels about that complex over there. And are they kind of situated to really take advantage of a good team now? So let me just say, um, you know, despite being growing up in Manhattan, um, Brooklyn apparently is the hip place to live it now. Is, but not among uh, the sports. It's really, yeah, I know. I'm saying it's, it's <laughs> by the writing public. I know. I, sure. But it's extraordinarily easy to get to that stadium yeah. by public transit. Not that it's hard to get to Madison Square Garden by public transit. <laughs> exactly but right. it's it's easy to get there. And it's an exciting arena to go to. I've been there. It's a great place to watch a basketball game. And now you've got a team that, you know, look. This may be back to the old days. Remember, uh, I, we're not going to talk about baseball for long, but remember the old days. There were three teams in New York. Yep. And you know what? This could end up being the Brooklyn Dodgers of the of Brooklyn again. This could be, even if you just had Brooklyn fans, two million people or something live in Brooklyn. They've got a whole city just in Brooklyn. If just those people come to the game, I games. think the early returns, if you simply just categorize New Yorkers 
basketball team allegiances, I think it's 80-20. Yeah, Knicks, Knicks versus yeah. the Nets. Well, so and, what's it going to be two years from uh, now? That's the question. I mean, I have to say, I grew up as a Knicks fan after so many years of abominable play and living in Philadelphia. I've adopted the Sixers. I'm going to come out there and, and say I've made a switch. Wow! It's but I never was too too, too, too yeah. allied in the first place. Yeah. But it's nice to see the Nets. But I think, but the real, you know, the real New Yorkers have always been Knicks fans. But the other teams, obviously, <laughs> what is well, the other teams, <laughs> right? The other teams you have to talk about, of course, is the Warriors. I mean, you know, the dynasty's over. I mean, you have. Clay Thompson, who's injured, who's going to come back maybe by the end of the season. Obviously, they don't have Durant anymore. No more Iguodala. So, you know, you have a a team now that, at least starting this season, is Steph Curry. That's a good start. Yeah, no, it's not not a bad start. (laughs) But what you're going to see, though, is, that's my prediction, just a prediction, he's no LeBron James in the following sense. I'm not saying he's not maybe the best shooter in the history of the NBA, but he can't lift an entire team the way LeBron James can lift an entire team. And so it's going to be him, D'Angelo Russell, they signed their Kevin Looney, Draymond Green. I'm not saying they don't have a very good team, but that's not a championship-level team anymore. Well, I'm curious to see what they do with this. Almost, it's more fun to see them with a little bit of a handicap. Let's put another, let's put a little more sand on the, on the horse, right? And see what happens with a great coach and some of the best players in the league. I I, kind of hate to see them lose Iguodala because he's such, for a bigger guy, he's such a creative playmaker. But the rest of it's like, all right, that's the landscape, the NBA landscape is so much more interesting now. But I we, mean, yeah, we, but, we, we can, you know, we, in some sense, we lament the, how much player movement happens these days, right? Because you, 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 they change allegiances. You know, you're a Durant fan when he's with Oklahoma City, and then all of a sudden he's over on the West Coast. And now, and, but, but on the other hand, you've got new teams that become relevant kind of overnight. And so no one paid any attention to Golden State 10 years ago. No one paid any attention to New Jersey Nets until this week. But so me, it's kind of fun in that sense. Well, let me ask you a question. I wanted to ask you an analytics-related question relating to uh, Kevin Durant and his movement. Um, have any of you guys ever been paid $38 million to do nothing? <laughs> He's going to be rehabbing. No, no, here's my point. My point is... Yeah. How confident? Let's let's say the way Kevin Durant yeah, was right. was a hundred percent. Let's say let's say let's take the Kevin Durant. Forget that he's. By the way, I think he's been in the league something like eleven years. I may have it wrong, but roughly eleven years. I understand he's thirty years old, but he's been in the league eleven years. Got a lot of mileage. So even if he hadn't been injured, you're now getting the thirty-one to thirty-five-year-old Kevin Durant. Not the 25 to 30-year-old Kevin Durant. That's number one. And number two, you could argue he's had two major injuries. Because remember, he was injured before he really got injured. And now, what's the likelihood, A, that he comes back fully healthy? And then, B, is the new fully healthy Durant, is he... 80, 90%, 90% of the old, old, Durant. old Durant, and then we're forgetting age curves, age curve. mileage, etc. You know, it's I interesting. Think it was a strange choice. I have to say, you know, a baseball team would never do this. A guy who goes down with a major injury at age 30. That's why I'm asking. Would never get this kind no, of Baseball's contract. too busy paying, you know, 30-year-olds $200 million contracts. That's true. Healthy guys. They make bad decisions in other oh, it's ways. That's true, but the thing is, is that the, the concept of coming back from a year of year-long injury, it, basketball is very predictable. The quality, star quality, I think, is more sticky okay. and more predictable than in any other sport. But let me ask you a, re- a re- related question, which is the other half of the equation for these guys. 
what percentage of old Kevin Durant does new Kevin Durant need to be to justify a full a max contract? Uh, not very much because the max contracts are so so undervalued in basketball. Well, it, uh, that's he, the problem. No, so, great... so so we would forecast that he's going to be in expectation. He'll be some fraction of what yeah. he was before, point nine, point eight five, or whatever. But I I don't know the values enough in basketball to say. But I'm I'm going to guess that point nine of old Kevin Durant is still worth max Just contract. A, here's a, here's a number we talked about. What I, would say is, what I would say is as follows. I would say if you take age and injury into account, uh, you know, let's imagine they're independent for the moment, although they're not, because a 22-year-old would recover from this injury a lot better than a 30-year-old with a lot of yep. mileage. But let's just say I could multiply these two probabilities together. He's going to be point nine based on injury, point nine based on age. All right, so now let's. I'm just doing rough math. This mathematics. is just in, in expectation. In expectation, so he's going to be eighty percent of the old Kevin Durant. I think Cade's asked the right question, which is okay. So you don't spend the thirty-five million on Durant. Who else are you going yep. to spend it on? And are you getting anybody Any better? Here's, and the answer is no. Here's the number. So from that point of view, it makes sense. Here, I agree with you. Here's from the that number. Let's throw out. Let's just start with this. If you had a free market, and you could. And there was no cap, a cap on individual player. You say there was yeah. a team cap, but or a rough team cap, but no cap on an individual player. How much would the team play pay, uh, LeBron or Durant? And they're pretty close, right? Maybe a little bit behind. But if you had no cap, it would be probably at least eighty to one hundred million dollars. Well, that's the number I've heard many economic least, analyses right. say in the so, eighty to one hundred million dollars. Okay, range. so point seven times one hundred is seventy million. That's still twice what you're going to pay him. Now we need to know something about the utility of. Durant as a function of the fraction of convexity. By the way, we should also spend just a few seconds talking about our Philadelphia 76ers. I, I wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm well, personally excited about well, Al Horford. Let me say the good news, and then let me say the concerning news I have. Neil Payne likes it. I know. So I, I read that. Let me, <laughs> I, I know I read something he wrote about it. Let me say the concern I have about it. Let's start with the good news. If you actually look at the people say, well, we lost our three-point specialist. If you actually look at the three-point percentage and effective field goal percentage of Horford and Richardson, it's equal to Butler and Reddick, including in threes. Most people don't think that. Butler and Reddick make the same number of threes and essentially at the same percentage as Horford and Richardson. Because Horford's is a much better three-point shooter than you think. And Richardson's Shocking. a 36%. He's an average three-point shooter. And so... From that point of view, I'm not concerned. The other point of view I'm not concerned is Hawford and Richardson, by every advanced metric, are much better defensive players than Butler and Reddick. Here's my concern. Remember my three theories of basketball, but the major one. Who do you go to? Who do you go to at the end of the game? So your best two players are now going to be Ben Simmons, who can't shoot, and Joel Embiid, who you can't get the ball to at the end of the game. Now, now, you just please so now, remind me why can't you get it to him? Because he's okay, double so, teamed, or correct? So let me remind mm -hmm. you of there's a 24 second clock in basketball. The first thing you do near the end of the game is you press the team coming up the court. There's only 16 seconds left when they cross the half court line. It takes five seconds to get the ball to Embiid. He's now got it with 10 seconds left. You double team him. It takes three rotations of the ball to get the ball on the other side of the court. You're now single dimensional with five seconds left on the clock. Embiid cannot create his own shot easily in the last two minutes of the game with 25 feet from the hoop. So the problem is, here's the key linchpin now. We also signed someone else to a five-year, $190 million contract who's 26 years old, and his name's Tobias Harris, who was on the team last year. Can Tobias Harris be the closer at the end of the game? Because it's not going to be Al Horford creating his shots. It's probably not going to be Josh Richardson. That's my number one concern, mm -hmm. is who's going to shoot the ball in the last two minutes. And by the way, if Reddick and Butler had done a little better job, 
we would have gone to the NBA Finals potentially because we remember we were up six points against Toronto in Game Seven of oh, that yeah. game, and we had four bad possessions in a row at the end of that game that essentially let Toronto come back. So I'm not thrilled about this trade from that perspective. It'll be fun to watch. I, I know the Celtics said just such amazing things about Al Horford as a as a teammate, as a guy in the locker room. I as, think part of the player, reason the Sixers got him is because Embiid didn't want to go up against him yeah, anymore because exactly. Horford played him better than anybody I had seen in the league. <laughs> That's one way to, to, to fight your problems. <laughs> so, fellas, in the last few minutes of the first quarter, what, what do you have? What do you have on the on? Well, well you want to some really big. I, you guys should give me credit. It's taken us 24 yeah, minutes, and I, I haven't know. mentioned the biggest sporting event in the world. <laughs> you were there. No. Not the Yankees-Red <laughs> Sox game. No. Just give me that some credit. Great. We'll talk about that in the last half hour. When Tomo- no. <laughs> Tomorrow's the Super Bowl oh of sporting gosh. events. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to the bathroom. Oh, is it, is it going to be, be the, the hot dog eating contest yes. this tomorrow? Unbelievable. Yes. And let me just comment about this. I actually use no, this no, in, I, my, in my well, analytics class. I, I want to comment about two things about it. Number one, last night there was a brilliant 90-minute 30-for-30 on ESPN about the battle between Takara Kobayashi and Joey Chestnut and about the history of their battle and about their training methods for training for this. But from an analytics perspective, you should be... This is you study exceedances. I do. I and love so, the story. Well, so not only has the guy won eleven out of twelve titles. Remember this guy, Matt Stoney, beat him a couple years ago, but he's so far ahead of everybody else right now. Like he could win by twenty hot dogs in the ten minute span. He's over seventy. The next greatest person might break fifty. So from that point of view, but he doesn't even go up against he, Kobayashi anymore. Does no, that, he doesn't. No, but I'm just saying, regardless of that. Don't you find, just as a statistical perspective, the degree to which he's so much better than everybody else to be... Cade, you're not buying it? Cade's looking at it. You're not buying it? He has only one thing to respond to. It's hot dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I love the story of Kobayashi because he discovered a new way to play the game that no one else thought about. And it transformed what, what was... Previously, previously thought to be unimaginable. Well, you separate the an, hot dogs and the buns. Yeah, and I thought that was an incredible breakthrough. And and it's and the thing like it's the a, Fosbury flop. It's, it's like it's, so many great it's a, sporting it's accomplishments. So, so similar to Fosbury flop. It's mm-hmm. but it's it's a classic idea where people think something is impossible until they see it done, and then all, all of a sudden everyone's doing it. And mm-hmm. it's it's a remarkable uh, aspect of human nature. We think something is impossible. No one's anywhere near that threshold, and then all of a sudden someone does this. And then huge numbers of people follow through. And I'll, I'll bring it back to an, a topic that you like, say, college football recruiting. And you'll see a, a small town that never sends anyone to a top football program. They send one person to that program, to a, a top program. And all of a sudden, they're a whole slew come following right behind it. Why? Well, one one could argue that they realized that this was possible no, for them. No, Adi Weiner, who are you? <laughs> Who's sitting across the table from me? That's not going to be the explanation. We, now, we we did see something like that happen when they broke the four-minute mile in yes. running, right? That was Roger I mean, that, Bannister, yeah. So there was this psychological barrier there, right? That seemed Some people thought that that was actually playing a role, that once it fell. But it's hard to separate that from training and the development of the sport. Right, just the evolution of things. I just the the only reason I, I besides I like watching this event. You know, let's remind of our listeners: this is July fourth at noon on ESPN. Um, <laughs> just to remind everybody, um, thousands and thousands and thousands of people now compete in this sport, and so you, we again his. Well, hold on, which oh, I thought we were talking about hot dog eating contest. You just mentioned the word sport. Yeah, it's a topic? sport. He did. He did. Okay. It's a sport. I'm more generous than you. 
Why not is quite it as not generous a sport? As Eric, there's training there's for training, it. Yeah. There's analytics for it. There's technique. Watch the thirty for thirty, and you will become a fan. We, we've had. I don't remember my favorite. Well, I shouldn't. Can I, I, I remember my two least favorite interviews in five and a half years on this show. Joey Chestnut was one of them. Or? I, 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 nothing against Joey Chestnut. I thought but. it was a, it was an entertaining interview. Let me ask you a question. This is something we should probably talk about. What are the definitions of sport? Is chess a sport to you, or is that just a game? And is there a difference? Well, you know, I don't have a well formed notion here. My instinct, my instinctive answer to that is no. No, it's and is League of Legends a sport? Which is I, an my, sport. my answer to that is no. Even okay. though I, which I, is fine, I think know. those are re- respectable answers. But but Eric, what would you say with that? I would say to chess is no. No, I would say chess is purely a game of skill. There's no, although you could That's say not the definition, but you could say one thing about it. There is a physical endurance yeah. part of chess that to keep your mental acuity and your physical nature for that long a period of time. From that point of view, there is a physical so, so nature you, you, to it. I would you, you say no for chess. On, you put your finger on a, a defining characteristic, yeah, which is sure. physicality. Yeah. And the chess is a mental game. And then by, no. by, by, but League of but Legends it, is uh, essentially you, a mental yeah, game, you've, too. Re- you've reported that, that reaction time, reaction is, critical time is critical in yeah. esports. And, in fact, one of the reasons the top athletes, quote, athletes in esports are so young they flame is out that at reaction, reaction time esports, esports is a sport. Well, this is something I to debate a, and think I, about. In my opinion, know? that's a clear well, sport, I mean, let, and chess is not a sport. But let's just figure out what the alternative is. The alternative is game. What? Hold on, hold on. What's the, how could, draw that distinction, counselor. <laughs> well, esports, I mean, reaction time is part of it. I think Which you is can, a physical or an right? athletic. Okay. You can train. Okay. You can train. Not that you can't train for chess, but you you can. You can train to have faster reaction He's times. Coming up with more dimensions out of you. Ask yeah, for dimensions. We people are. do this all yep. the time. I think there is. Well, there is in chess too, but in esports, there's an age curve. So I think it meets that dimension of it. Um, I think, yeah, I do. I think it's a sport. Is, is it? It's wrong. Is it just kind of assumes away the answer to say it's a virtual thing as opposed to a physical thing? I don't. That doesn't matter to me. Yeah, it's too. It's too. It's too. It's too it does too, have a reaction time component, which is enormous. I like that. I like. I like that. I like that piece. Follow us on Twitter at w moneyball. At w moneyball is our handle up there. We follow all of our guests. We follow Ted Knudsen. He's got a interesting. Handle on Twitter at mixed nuts nuts with a K K in there mixed K N U T S at mixed nuts is our next guest Ted Knutson welcome to the show welcome back to the show Ted delighted to have you thanks K nice to be back where are you calling from this morning Bath England Bath in all right you're back on you're 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 that's where you're based right you're you're not English but you live there now is that right that's correct my my wife is English my kids are are English. Uh, I was in Cairo last week. I'll be in Los Angeles this weekend. So uh, kind of very much when you're involved in soccer slash football, the world traveler. Absolutely. And, you, and you've strung your organization out to make it even more world traveling. We want to hear a little bit about that. Let me real quickly say that you are the owner and founder of StatsBomb and StatsBomb Services. You are one of the leading providers um, of soccer analytics and, and soccer. And you, you created your own data, which is what we want to hear a little bit more about as well. Interesting background, Ted. You were head of player analytics at a couple of clubs and before that doing analytics for pinnacle in fact my understanding is that you were one of the first guys create coming up with what kinds of bets these books would provide and how to calculate the lines for those bets so very interesting in and out of the world of soccer analytics what is on your mind right now like what are you worried about when you're going to cairo when you're going to los angeles what problems are you trying to solve what is the leading edge for stats bomb at the moment i'm really it's it's communicating 
our value and the value of this type of approach to the teams out there. And, and the difference, and a lot of American audiences might not necessarily understand this because it's been a long time since we were in this space, but soccer is kind of where uh, baseball was in like 2004. Uh, so right, right as the money ball, sort of the public money ball era is beginning, soccer is looking at the game in that way. And England is, is one of the forerunners in this, some of the U.S. as well. And then the rest of the world is, is like slowly becoming aware of it but they're not necessarily understanding it yet. And so like, that's kind of where we're at. And part of our job is uh, to explain why it's so useful to them, especially for, as the early adopters come on board. So you're saying that the Premier League kind of gets it, and they're at the front of the analytics revolution in soccer, but that they're, that they're kind of clearly above everyone else. That's a little surprising to me, given how important soccer is in other places in the world. Why is that gap? Why does that exist? It's a very traditional sport, and in a lot of ways, the, the sort of coach mentality uh, has real strength here. So, like, the coach knows best. Coaches generally come from the educational background of the academies. They're usually ex-players, and so they're not really that interested in, like, a mathematical approach. And a lot of the, the kind of adjustments and the transition to using more data and objective information in soccer has come from external owners that use this in their businesses, and then they're like, well, this would be a really good thing for our, our team to use. And obviously kind of the, the, the forerunner and this, at, at least the most public level, is Liverpool, who are owned by John Henry and, uh, and Fenway Sports Group. So, Ted, this is Eric Bradlow. Um, it, this is one of those one degree of separation moments. So I was just at, in London at the Wharton Forum. And I interviewed someone that you must know extraordinarily well about the use of analytics in soccer, and his name is Rasmus Ankerson. And you must know Rasmus because of the two teams that you work with. So That's right. I, I spent about two years with Rasmus uh, on the ground working with those teams. Yeah, so Mike, my question for you is one of the things he mentioned, which is just building on your last point, was about the ownership of those teams. My understanding is the owner of that te- of those teams actually was is a professional sports better, used analytics to gain wealth and then was going to kind of apply those methods to the teams that he owned. Do I have the story right? At least that's what Rasmus said on stage when I asked him about telling me about the background of these teams and the ownership. Sure. So these teams would be Brentford and Midland where I used to work and the owner's Matthew Benham. And Matthew Benham owns I they're often called syndicates, uh, but you know, really, they're like sports betting hedge funds. And Matthew's been involved in that world for, I guess, like 15, 20 years now, and, and has found it quite lucrative. And so a lot of the things that we did in that space were applying part of what he uh, had and, and the sort of like the gambling data uh, analysis for teams and, and a little bit players, and then taking the new research on individual player data, skill sets, and, and transfer information and applying that to the teams. And they've done quite well since that time. And could you maybe tell us, like, I, I might just ask you the same question now that I have you on here. What would you say, we talked about this in the first half hour so far of the show today, what do you think was the greatest use of analytics that you guys did during those days in evaluating players, or was it more player valuation? Was it more on the field, field strategy, stuff, field strategy? What did you guys use it for? So the, the first analytical wave in almost any sport is player analysis. Can we find better players for cheap? Uh, partly because that's like the biggest cost center uh, and ongoing uh, you know, set of costs that any team has. So if you can make that more efficient, uh, that becomes super useful. And that's kind of what happened at, at Brentford and Michelin. But the, the next level there is also, can you start to find players in leagues that are unfancied or eventually markets that are unfancied and, and they'll be cheaper. And we didn't really have like we used a lot of the gambling models to say, actually, we think these 
teams and these leagues are way better than everybody else does, mm. but we can find them at a huge discount and, and get anywhere from when we sell them directly, which is one of the cool things about soccer as well. Like, you know, you have your direct, uh, you can tally up the value of things pretty easily, unlike draft picks. When you sell them directly, you know, can you double your money? Can you make six times your money on, on those players by finding undervalued talent and then developing them? So, Ted, this is Adi Weiner. I want to push you on this a little bit because the story you're telling is, of course, the Moneyball story. A Billy Bean used analytics to find um, players who were less valued, but he did it in a way that you could, you could describe. I mean, he found attributes of players that were undervalued and bought those. Can we apply the same story to soccer? Is there anything that you can tell us, the public who doesn't maybe know that much about soccer, what valuation strategies you use to discover these undervalued um, talents, if possible? In the early era of my, my time in this, so kind of started in 2013, uh, I, I was looking for the walks of, of soccer. Like what, what, yeah, the on-base percentage. Right. Exactly. And, and what we kind of started to look at was, you know, let's find players that are creative players, because goals get all of the plaudits that everybody's looking for, like great scores of, of goals, what they call strikers or forwards. Like, what about the players that are creating those goals? Because like, it's, it's, it's almost like Schrodinger's goal. If you set up a shot for your teammate, uh, you don't know what the outcome of that shot is likely to be, but that probably has a lot of value behind it. So that was the first place to, that I started. And you know, since that time, obviously, we've gotten much more advanced, but it was a really good place to start, because when you looked at that, you could often find young players and do back testing and modeling that said that, you know, players who do this tend to have pretty long lifespans. They're able to create often across leagues and they have significant value that the market doesn't fully uh, understand yet. Is it, is it something you measured? Yeah, let's, let's take that down one level just to understand the analytics themselves a little bit better. What does it mean to, what, literally, how do you operationalize creating someone else's shot? Uh, you're looking for players that, uh, have passes that create a shot, and that you know we used off the data at the beginning uh, to to kind of start this type of research. They had been in the market for I don't know since 2000 in different ways, and so that was what we we started to analyze from some publicly available data, and then a lot more data once we got inside of the clubs. Is there are there any um, heuristics for this? So if you imagine passes that help create shots, if you can sort of look at the time series of passes, if someone who sort of makes or is involved in a pass that's somehow locally attached to a, a successful shot or maybe just a shot on goal, is that is that correlate with the things that you're measuring? Yeah, and and we do population analysis, like you know what are the what are the actual good players look like? What is the 50th percentile, the medians, etc. So it's, and and you know two standard devi- deviations was something we found to be quite important. Uh, partly because when I first started plotting this information, Lionel Messi and, and Cristiano Ronaldo made every player in the world look so bad that <laughs> you're like, oh, right. okay, this, these guys are, are, are almost slightly irrelevant. They're not purchasable, so we need to find a way to, to look at the rest of the population that we can actually work with. So in those cases, you're, you're a little bit excluding the outliers. So in terms of identifying these players, can you give us can you give us a concrete example to talk just to talk through how it is done? So I, this you, you may not have this one. I want to use this one, but Salah I hear I understand was identified in Egypt long before. And, and it's, did AS Roma find him first? I forget exactly how that worked exactly. Chelsea so, found so him, but but he it, went it, from Egypt. I'm to sorry, Basel in Switzerland, mm-hmm. and then to Chelsea where he was loaned out to Italy, and, and he, was, he was widely perceived as, as kind of a washout at Chelsea. Uh, they have a lot of low knees, and like, he wasn't very impressive. But in actuality, when he played, he, he did score and, and seemed to be fairly a, a good player. 
Then he was quite good in Italy. Roma picked up on him, and then he comes back to Liverpool, and still at a kind of an undervalued price. Uh, and, and he's been one of the best players in the world since he came to Liverpool. So that's just what's extraordinary to me about that story is that he can go, he can be like under the microscope for that long a period of time, and yet be undervalued in some way. And is that the right way to think about it, or are we are we kind of retrospectively telling that story? And in fact, he. He, he wasn't showing he wasn't showing those signs yet. He just bore fruit later on. What's your analysis of what happened there? We were also our analysis matched up with Liverpool, and the year that they signed him uh, in the summertime before he ever played a game, we said that he was probably the signing of the summer in the Premier League for that team. Uh, and and basically, what was happening was he got a reputation, uh, especially in England, and and suddenly you're like, oh well, he's not that good. And in reality, if you look at the data, he's outstanding, especially for his age cohort. And, and suddenly you're like, you know, maybe we could get him like much cheaper than the market thinks. And that's always what you're looking for. You're looking for players with unique, useful skill sets, profile those skill sets that fit into your team from a tactical perspective. And then can we find them at, at appropriate value compared to everybody else that we could potentially buy? Right. Okay, so Ted, because a lot of the, our audience and, in fact, some of the co-hosts here aren't that deep on soccer, when you say look at the data – if you said that to us in baseball or basketball, we would know what you're talking about. In soccer, what what are you looking at that the casual fan or even some owners and, and managers are not seeing when they watch the guy themselves with their naked eyes? You look at the data. In soccer, what does that mean? What are you looking at? Well, it's, it's a little bit the same stuff that you would do in baseball. You don't really care what a guy looks like necessarily. You care about how they perform. What is their output? So we track every shot, every pass every move, uh, pressures, tackles, aerial wins, uh, goalkeeper saves, all of these things. And, and Statsbomb now has about 3,400 events per game, which is about double what the other companies have. And the reason why we did this was because we wanted to, to better represent what football teams want to look for or should look for when they're starting to do this type of statistical scouting. Mm-hmm. And it comes back into some tactical stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Ted Knudsen. Ted is the owner and founder of Statsbomb one of the firms at the on the leading edge of sports analytics. Ted, you're talking about 3,400 events per match. This is something that's different about what you guys do, and I think this is an important part of your story. So if you're inside a team, if you're inside a building, you have access to incredibly granular data, right? You have motion tracking data, but if you're not inside the building in soccer, you don't get those data. So you're not inside the building anymore. You've got your own outfit. You had to go out and build your own data. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've done there? What's unique about what you're offering? We went back to, to basic principles, and it's kind of funny. Uh, the early days, I and mean, even early, like up until two years ago, the most basic unit of defense of defending in soccer wasn't tracked as a stat. And and very much, you know, you get in this mode of, well, what can we measure, and then we'll analyze that. But we we went back to basic principles and said, you know, how do teams defend, and and where are they defending, and do we care about that? So we added that into our data. We added the location of a goalkeeper so you can properly credit them for being able to make saves or not. And that's one area of, of kind of arbitrage that is coming in the market because you're much, when you're better able to evaluate the impact of goalkeepers on keeping balls out of the net, then you're able to evaluate them and place a value on them and make sure that you don't spend, say, 70 million euros on a guy that looks completely average like one of the Premier League teams did last year. <laughs> so the... Part of this is collecting these data, but then you talked right up on the top, at the top of our interview about communicating those data. Last time I talked to you, you were you were trying to pair video with these kinds of event analysis. Is that right? And where are you on that? What does that do for you? And where are you on that? Yeah, so our current project for this year is very much about video and computer vision, uh, which is kind of a combination. And what it does is it we also spend a lot of time on visualization of the data. 
because soccer and coaches in general are very visual, and so are players. And so being able to take what are numbers and often a little scary and intimidating them and turn them into information that is actionable insight is one area that you know, our company spends a lot of time on. Uh, we want to make that attractive. But at the end of the day, we collect our information off of video. Um, you know, even optical tracking is still video. It's just you know, data that's immediately turned into, right. or video that's turned into data. So what we do is, is we're trying to, to do that next level and pair all of the data and its actual insight and then put the video right alongside of it so that all the coaches can feel comfortable that, hey, the data and the video are the same. Mm-hmm. And I now have a much better trust process involved in this information. Mm-hmm. So, Ted, this is Eric Bradlow again. How, let me just build on your concept of video because it's obviously one of the data sources not just in soccer but in all sports and all businesses that is starting to expand. Do you guys have a way, like are you guys using artificial intelligence and big data methods and to deal with the scale of the data? Are you still using humans to watch video and score it? How do you turn the actual video into data itself? We do both of those, and we're kind of on our journey for using the machine learning and computer vision stuff. Uh, it's gotten a lot easier to do than it would have been, say, five years ago, uh, because a lot of the biggest companies have, have produced their public research and made it available. So we are in the process of, of you know, taking a lot of that and turning into uh, turning the video into computer vision, machine learning algorithm type information. One of the, the tricky things about data is that Many of the companies that already do this in an automated way still have a ton of humans behind the scenes to make sure that the computers aren't making mistakes. And and that's kind of part of the natural process of, mm-hmm. of development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ted, let's talk a little bit about soccer itself. So who, who are you a fan of? Do you still watch much as a fan? And what was your take on the Premier League this year or Champions League? What was most interesting to you about the season that we've just come through? I am a long-term Arsenal fan and and U.S. women's national team fan. Uh, I think those are probably the the two longest fandoms that I've had in in this space. Uh, Premier League was a bit painful for me this year, uh, partly because Arsenal weren't great. But it was really amazing to watch Manchester City and Liverpool, two of the top teams in kind of executing uh, superior strategies, go Mm toe-to-toe. And uh, it it felt good to see Liverpool, who are really smart, and I know a lot of people there, actually win a title for this amazing season they had where they mm-hmm. finished they were the third best Premier League season ever right. but they finished in second place <laughs> right right so they got the consolation it's weird when Champions League is consolation but it felt a little bit that way <laughs> um, well you lead us right up to the to the topic of the day here in the US of course is the US women's national team what do you make of the of the World Cup tournament so far what do you what do you think is going to happen we were talking at the top of the show about the the kind of extreme odds that we're seeing already on the women win- winning regardless of who comes through on the other side what's your take on it well I think that we we saw them pushed about as far as they could go last night so I'm not so sure that those extreme odds would be appropriate I think Sweden is a is a bit of a, an underdog and wasn't expected but the Netherlands have quite a good attack and mm-hmm. you know, the u.s despite playing some pretty good defense for most of the tournament, is, is, you know, the game has developed enough so that they are still under threat, and perhaps more so than they had been mm. historically. Well, say, um, say more about that. In yeah, what way has it developed that leaves them more under threat than they have been historically? Europe especially has started spending more time and more money investing in their women's teams. Uh, the, the bigger men's side clubs have now all pretty much developed women's teams as well, not just in England, but in Spain. In, uh, in France, in, in Italy, and, and Germany as well. And so where the, there wasn't much money spent on development before, there's at least some spent now, but there's also a huge gap. And, and you're seeing 
you know, the stuff that the level of play you'd see in the Champions League is not the same as the Women's World Cup. But really, that's mostly just development time, coaching time, and money spent on on affording that. Mm-hmm. So, women in in uh, in Europe and in England, where do they get their training? Because in America, it comes from college. Typically, I mean, they play in high school, but their advanced skills, I imagine, happen in college. And there's there, there's no similar system in Europe. They, we don't have the academy system for soccer in America, and that's what what drives the system for men. So, how do women essentially acquire the skills and talents? Yeah, it's it's starting to be similar towards the men. So most of them have some level of, of women's youth teams uh-huh. that are coming up, even at the, the championship level. Uh, there's a couple tiers of, uh, of of women's football here, and then that goes down into the, the, the youth levels too. But it's not the same as the U.S. Like every girl, it felt like anyway, in the U.S. was playing sport, whether it's mm-hmm. basketball, but especially soccer. The most, the mm-hmm. most you know, widespread sport in U.S. for women is soccer. Here, especially like a hundred thousand person city and you're trying to find like two girls teams at age 10. And so it, it <laughs> still very much in its infancy. It's really strange. Like I, I find it fascinating because the men, you get like 10 kids or 10 kids teams uh, all around the, the space. The girls, it's really trying to cobble together enough people to have a game. Wow. When you watch it, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're both a soccer fan and, and a real expert. Do you see many differences in the game? How would you describe the differences, other than just overall quality of play, between women's soccer at this level versus men's soccer at this level? I think the main difference that we see is, is simply in the power of passes and shots. And that's kind of a, a subtle difference, but it, it has a big impact on two areas. So the passes themselves, uh, women can't quite hit it as hard or as far. Uh, it gives the defense a little more time to respond. It's the same way at the goalkeeper level. There's all this talk about how the goalkeepers are not as tall as their male counterparts. Well, that's true. But in general, on average, women don't shoot as hard as their mm-hmm. the male counterparts. And so it gives those goalkeepers, despite the fact that they're not as tall, a little more time to react to the ball. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always work if you hit it hard in the corner, but it is it is a difference in the game, and it's pretty subtle. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the penalty kick last night. Was that just not a great kick, or was or, or was it one of these situations where she just had more time to react because it wasn't because it was a women's match instead of a men's? Uh, it was probably a pretty poor execution. It wasn't put like far enough into the far corner. Enough it wasn't hit solid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Ted, before we go here, just the last couple of minutes, what what what? What, as a fan, do you think you follow differently than the casual fan? So we're gonna, all going to be watching the women's game on, on Saturday what, or Sunday. What advice would you give to us as we watch the game, and how do you think you watch it differently than the casual fan? I think I've changed a lot, and I've got a couple different hats that I wear. So when we're scouting for players, like I watch it from a player perspective. But one of the big things that I always watch differently is set pieces. And set pieces are like often you know, 25 to 30% of the game, and that's where teams don't spend nearly as much time as they might. Real I'm quickly, Ted, sure remind, us, remind us what you mean by set piece. Sure. So corners, uh, free kicks, even sometimes long throws, uh, those are all things that, that we call set pieces. And, and those are uh, a hidden edge inside of the game. Mm-hmm. U.S. women actually had a lovely free kick very early on and just missed uh, three open players kind of in the center of the box from, uh, from there. Mm-hmm. That's one edge that you will find. Netherlands also really good at it. Uh, we'll see if, if either one of them score uh, in the final, if, if the Netherlands make it there mm-hmm. this weekend. Is there a particular type of situation that you think is undervalued these set pieces i, I mean, all of them <laughs> all of them really wow okay. it's one area of our expertise but we i would go into these clubs and we would find out that they spend like five to ten minutes a week on them and at mitchelland when we were working wow. on the, the system it was 15 minutes a day 
And that's the kind of gap that you're looking at to say, okay, okay we're pretty sure we can get a huge edge out of this. Mm-hmm. And it gave us our first title and probably gave Michelin their second as well. Wow, that's amazing. All right, listen, Ted, fantastic to talk to you. As always, we wish you the best with your work. Have fun this weekend watching the U.S. Women's National Team. Thank you for having me on. Bye. Absolutely. Ted Knudsen, owner and founder of StatsBomb. And StatsBomb Services, one of the leading firms on soccer analytics. He's based out of England. He has a big shop in Cairo putting together these data. And he sells his soccer analytics services around the world, Ted Knutson. You can follow him at Mixed Nuts. At Mixed Nuts is his Twitter handle. He's a great follow. Mixed Nuts is spelled with a K in there, M-I-X-E-D-K-N-U-T-S. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back. To Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics, live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. or email us, businessradio at cirrusxm.com, or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is a great way to reach us. You can follow our account up there but you can also reach out to us send us questions comments observations whatever you got give us an over under we usually end our show with an over under segment in the non-football parts of the year Cade massey hosting this morning with my buddies eric bradlow and adi weiner adi stepped out for a moment he will be back shane jensen out doing shane jensen things today some combination of us are here every wednesday morning you guys can always jump in here and join us. Just off the phone with Ted Knudsen of StatsBomb. Always, goodness gracious, is it good to talk to him. It's, a, is, it's just amazing what they're doing in soccer now. Yeah. Well, I think he's about as good as it gets. He's got a, such a well-rounded background, having been inside sports books, inside sports teams, and now on his own creating data. Ted Knudsen's fantastic. Can't recommend following him enough. At MixNuts is his Twitter handle. In the next half hour, we are thrilled, delighted to have Andrew Walker join us. Andrew is the senior head therapist at Cirque du Soleil. We're gonna we're gonna change sports on you here a little bit. We heard about these guys from David Epstein a couple of weeks ago. The author David Epstein. He's got a new book called Range. David's well known for his book called The Sports Gene. He's very in touch with what's going on in sports science around the world, and he introduced us to this concept of what's going on inside Cirque du Soleil. So we want to hear more about it. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. We're delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning, Andrew? I'm actually uh, based in Cardiff in the UK. Um, so at the moment, I'm working out of Europe. Um, so suddenly, we've actually changed our philosophy a little bit recently, uh, where we're actually looking at more a zonal approach rather than a different approach. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's working well. It's nice and sunny here as well, which is great. Well, we've heard it's a little warm over in Europe right now, but we hope you're doing okay. We're going to hear, we want to hear more about these, this approach that you're taking and how it might be different from what you've done before. But let us first understand more about your background and then, and then probably a little bit more about Cirque du Soleil and the athletes that you have. But you didn't start out with these guys, obviously. Our understanding is that you actually were the first team physiotherapist for West Ham in the Premier League. Yeah, I was. Um, I've been fortunate to work with some great people and teams. Um, started off at West Ham Academy actually um, in 1999. So uh, working with the under eights to under 19, about 250 players. Mm-hmm. So I ended up uh, the medical and science team there. Um, lucky to get that position and a small part in developing these players 
and more importantly, developing with the rest of the staff of well-rounded people. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew, could, let's just let me jump I on that. Actually real... moved up into the first team. Let me uh, jump. Worked there for three years. Um, I moved up when actually West Ham got relegated, um, which it was a great experience that uh, we ended up gaining promotion two years later. Uh-huh. Um, so that was a little bit of my football experience and. Um, I'm fortunate to work with such a great academy and such a great team at the time in the Premiership. Um, and then I moved actually to Saracens Rugby in 2005, sixth season, uh, headed up the medical team, um, and I was there for seven years, growing the uh, department and again working with some great people, um, helping develop the uh, management team. But also as well, what we, what we did there is help develop the Saracens way. Um, and our philosophy at that club at the time, and I was fortunate to be involved in such a great group of people, was to create memories and develop people. And uh, that that um, had some pillars of humility, hard working and being disciplined underpinning that. Um, many new initiatives, um, helping to uh, build and develop people. Um, and... In 2012, I actually started a performance martyrs from America, um, and that's how I actually got into where I was. I actually did a sports science degree in 96 from the UK, followed by a physio degree in 99, and then obviously I looked at um, a little bit more of a holistic approach by bringing S&C, medical, nutrition, psychologist, sports scientist together, um, and... I actually ended up moving to Scarlet's rugby team, which is based in Wales, and headed up the performance team there. Um, and again, we had a very restricted budget. We tried to change mindsets, being from a different country. And um, there were some big internal changes we improved to sustain, um, to ba- basically look at sustainability within the setting for long-term success. And um, fortunately, we had some unprecedented results with um, players winning national honours and stuff like that. And two years ago now, I joined Cirque du Soleil, having decided to leave the Scarlets. Um, And I just wanted to look at something new, um, something that was more of a variety, and uh, what can be more of a variety than Cirque du Soleil. (laughs) And um, joining a global company for me was exciting. It was uh, match where I was in my career, and um, to be part now of the performance medicine team and a senior management team and the vice presidency of um, casting and performance. Um, it is very challenging, very, very uh, evolutionized, innovative, and with now the growth of the business, um, it's, it's exciting. I'm now based in Europe, supporting shows, staff, and artists across Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, but obviously, I'm bigger. I'm, I'm involved in the wider senior group where we look at that globally across the Americas, Canada, um, and lucky enough at the moment, I'm supporting 20 staff and 450 artists worldwide. Jeez, so, so uh, very diverse and very rewarding. Andrew, let's before we hear about what you're doing with Cirque du Soleil, just to make concrete the kind of work that you do, let's start with a domain that we're more familiar with. Rugby is not one of our sports, but at least we're talking about a team sport. When you were with the Scarlets there, what yeah. exactly were you doing with these players? You talked about having some success with some of these players. Can you give us an example of a guy or a team that you take and, and, and how, how do you work with them in a very concrete way? And what changes do you see as a result of that work? So, again, it's, it's 
it's looking at that holistic approach. It's bringing all the elements together of nutrition, psychology, S&C, strength and conditioning, programming, scheduling, travel, well-being, um, looking at every element of an individual, but also as well because they're team sports. You have to remember that you have to bring them together as a team as well. And from an individual perspective, it's developing them, developing them um, as people, but also developing their all-round skills. And the team involved in that, the backroom staff, is all about making sure you support them maximally. Um, and some of the real big learnings for me over many years and the transition from soccer to rugby to circ is all about communication. Um, from a rugby perspective at that time at Scarlet's, it was about looking at a multi-layered approach looking at a team approach and also educating that's ed not only educating the staff as a holistic uh, group of performance medicine staff or snc or but also coaching staff wider staff educating their family into dietary stuff or the right shopping stuff to be able to make reasoned decisions mm. biggest thing is making sure you're educating the the players or as now at Cirque du Soleil, the artists, um, educating them to make informed decisions and the yeah. right decisions at the right times. Andrew, um, are there some are there some aspects of their life that they are they're more amenable to this than others? So you're talking about this holistic approach where you use, you know, six, eight, ten different levers, you know, nutrition, but also training and S and C. Or did you find that these athletes were okay? They're fine to listen to you about S and C, but they're less interested in nutrition, or vice versa. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You have to, you have to find ways of um, communicating with people, and that's people management. People are, are learning different ways. So it might be that one, and also as well in in the environment in rugby, we used to have uh, Italian players who their first language of English wasn't particularly good, and even at certain now we have Russians and stuff like that. And it, the communication is key. We actually look at different ways of communicating to them. Actually doing different presentations, using people with them languages to put the message across. Mm. Same time, it might be, instead of doing a presentation, it might be better for a certain individual to talk to. It might be a certain individual that you give them a little bit of information to read and they absorb it differently. Mm -hmm. And it might be a different people where they're actually learning off their colleagues rather than the staff around them. So to educate the actual in some instances, players or artists to actually have them as the educators and leaders and leading that, mm -hmm. that's where you grow the culture. Mm -hmm. And that's where as a team approach, even within sports or performance or from my world now, from Cirque du Soleil, it's creating that culture and actually getting everyone involved and that, putting that same message across, but in different ways. So with the... It, it strikes if this were U.S. football, for example, you would yeah. not only have to convince the athletes to do these things. You'd have to convince the coaches that this is the right way to go. You'd have to convince the general manager. And yeah. in fact, it would be even more of a problem because the coaches have S&C and then the personnel guys have um, training or, or whatever the situation is not all bundled together in rugby or in soccer did you have much of that persuasion challenge as well how did you convince ownership management coaches that you needed to have access to players in this way and you needed to have control over their training schedule and their recovery schedule again all, all that is is planning and making sure that they buy it's, it's basically a whole organization buying into the same philosophy 
whether it be the coach, whether it be the vice president, whether it be the manager, whether it be the general manager, it's having that buy-in from everyone and making sure that everything is planned, everything is reasoned, and also as well, having people still do their roles and actually let them do their roles. Mm -hmm. I've been fortunate that the teams I've been involved in, the actual people around me, I'm not the expert, they're an expert in their field, let them do their role. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Having that information, but at the same time then, it's then the communication across all them channels, whereby the general manager would have a certain level of information that they can utilize, you'll give them weekly reports or monthly reports, and they understand where the growth is coming. They don't need to know, obviously, athletes or... or, um, team information to a ninth degree that's confidential, but they still need to have certain parameters within that that they understand how things are evolving, Mm -hmm. where the periodization is, where the scheduling is, but also as well, understanding that whole culture and buy-in. And I'll I'll do one instance, I was very fortunate at Saracens and we developed that. We even um, spoke as a high-level performance group and ended up putting a creche within our training facility which ended up then that the players had a mindset break, a mental break, to be able to see their children. They know, and the responsibility then, is also they know their children's in the right care. That means their families could visit over lunch, and it creates that whole family atmosphere, and everyone buying into that same philosophy. That's remarkable. I don't think I've heard of that example on the professional side here in the U.S. We're talking to Andrew Walker. Andrew is the senior head therapist at Cirque du Soleil. We've been talking about his background with soccer and rugby, but we're going to want to hear about your work with Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, so Andrew, this is Eric Bradlow. One of the things I'm fascinated on with your background is if I replaced Cirque du Soleil with West Ham United, if I replaced it with the New York Yankees, if I replaced it with any organization, is there anything specific, like let's call it industry-specific, or are the same principles of training and the use of data and the use of psychology, are it, what is it that is common and what is it that's different? Um, very good question. And uh, to be honest, it's all about keeping things basic and simplistic. Everyone looks at the moment across, across any organization for these 1% gains. And for me, and this is something I've spoken about previously, it's all about the 99% and getting that right, getting your basics right to start with Mm. across any organization. Now, what I mean by the basics, yes, you'll have tools of well-being apps, looking at sleep monitoring, looking at well-being monitoring, looking at quality of sleep, looking at mood of the athletes and stuff. But it's important to realize they're only tools. You might have a data analysis. You're gaining all the data. You're gaining all your statistics. But again, that's only a tool. You have to still treat the people as individuals, communicate communicate with them subjectively as a team, as a person, as a player, and also get them their input as well. And what we try and do at Cirque is an artistic-centered approach where they're the main person. They're involved in the decision-making process. And then that creates all that buy-in. Now, to have that communication, to have that team approach, it's really important that all the elements are there. Yes, there's innovative things that you utilize, there's GPS monitoring, um, there's WIMU, and there's different bits that Barcelona Football Club use. And 
it's important that all of them are only tools and only utilized to make an informed reason decision but also for me across across years of being in these team sports and and having fortunately having great teams around me and success and me being part of them teams communication is the key communication with people understanding people understanding people management observing it's important as well to observe and learn not just always come in and say this is how to do things actually observe evolve learn discuss involve the team and that is the biggest thing to take things forward for me. So, Andrew, let me ask a related and follow-up question. Um, if you're on, if someone's on the soccer pitch, we as fans, but certainly the coaches, can say that player had a bad day. Can someone look at someone? Could I, the fan, going to a Cirque du Soleil show, which I love, by the way? Thank you. We we love Cirque du Soleil in my household. If I go to a Cirque du Soleil show, could I? A, an amateur person to the naked eye notice could you as a physio expert say i see this performer's having a bad day and and if yes what would the metrics be what would constitute a bad day for a cirque du soleil performer obviously it, it's for us it's sustainability and repeatability that we that we need and that's within any team sport and across cirque du soleil and these artists um in our our environment now put they're actually trying to create the wealth for people. They're actually trying to make it so um, that you're looking at the show and thinking, wow, that's amazing. How do they do that? How do they do this? And I'm still in awe of them artists. I'm still in awe of athletes. I'm still in awe of sports people when I watch them. When I watch the MLS League, I'm still in awe of some of them athletes. Would you be able to pick up people having a bad day? There's certain elements you'd probably see, and we all we all do that communication. Oh, that person doesn't look look on the ball today. That person looks a bit sluggish. He's not quite right. And the metrics we use with that is everything. But the biggest metric for me is talking to that individual. It might be that they have not slept so well. They might be they might recently, and people forget stuff like family stuff going on around them. Um, and there's a lot of mental health awareness currently. It's important to ad- not not address it as such, but make sure it's an open, speaking, honest, safe zone for everyone to speak. And with that, then you'll be able to communicate with people before them feeling sluggish or going to a show. It's making sure that communication's there beforehand to make reasoned decisions. It might be, from an MLS perspective, it might be that you need to pull someone out the day of a game. But if there's an openness, an openness to communication, and also, on top of that, a safe zone for people to speak, that's the most important thing because then it's not affecting the team or it's not affecting the performance. Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. there's metrics of well-being, sleep, nutrition, psychology, GPS data, the amount they move, the looking at the scheduling, looking at their strength and conditioning programs, how much they're lifting. There's loads of different metrics to utilize. Yes, there is a combination, and I've been involved in a sports team where we used to have some certain red flag criteria, but it doesn't mean we're going to pull them out. It means there's then a communication with that athlete pre-game or Mm -hmm, mm pre-performance. Very interesting. Andrew, one thing you're emphasizing here is that we can sometimes get distracted by the the latest and greatest you know gadgets. We get distracted by the bells and whistles, 
and the most important bits are the more foundational pieces. And you you keep on emphasizing communication and relationship and treating them as people. And I think it's an important message for those of us in the analytics community. It's very interesting. One of the things that we've heard over the years, and this has come as much from like Olympic sports as it has from the traditional big sports over here, is the importance of developing training programs and, you know, the whole package that's tailored to the individual athlete. So it's basically heterogeneous training and development as opposed to the traditional method, which was everybody's out here running wind sprints together as a team or whatever. Everyone's running the same, doing the same regimen on the ski slope. Instead, recognizing that individuals' bodies and needs and recoveries are all different and so that these days you can actually very finely target the plan to that person's heterogeneous makeup. Do you see that at Cirque? And in what way do you tailor the programs to the individual artists that you're working with? Well, yeah, it's important to have that individualization. Everyone should be treated as an individual and everyone has different needs. Everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. And I think it's important everyone looks sometimes on people's weaknesses and developing them but also, also develop their strengths. So look at both elements within that. Um, from a Cirque du Soleil perspective, we, we're obviously looking at the high-performance culture. We're continually striving for that high-performance culture where it's built around the artist, having a collective approach, but making sure it's individualized. We're actually just come up with a philosophy called durability by design, mm-hmm. uh, which is a concept, but also it's, it's more of a cultural shift for us where durability is the ability to withstand the physical, technical, mental, and emotional demands. And the design as such is actually the approach, the intentional, proactive, and interdisciplinary approach to actually repeat your performance with optimal health. That has to be individualized. Yes, there's some elements that you need for act specificity, where there might be five people in an act or five people in a position in other sports. And the three pillars we've got within that is prepare, perform, and recover. So them three elements for me is where you target that individualization. Mm-hmm. So from a preparation point of view, or prepare as we, we looked at it, we're looking at the planning, the education, and the physical and emotional qualities that then reduces that injury risk. Um, there's elements within that then that we're actually, they might do a certain element that they have coffee or a um, at a certain time of day or a nutritional bit at a certain um, hour before their performance, so mm-hmm. like a performance zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same instance with that, they might be preparing mentally. They might go through a certain basic of their routine. They might do certain elements of their routine to get there. And we can support them as a, as a holistic performance team within actually getting that mm-hmm. and actually improving them. Um, then you've obviously got the performance element and giving them that state of performance of excellence to achieve stuff, to optimally perform. And then obviously there's a recover of the optimal state of well-being, restoring yourself to the best state through sleep, nutrition, management, healthy lifestyle habits. And from a recovery perspective, that could look at, um, from our perspective, we travel a lot. It might be looking at the hotel room, looking at the way the beds are situated, looking at um, looking at actually like a protein shake post-performance or mid-performance. It might be looking at um, doing a recovery element the next day, which might not be within our own facility. 
it might be away from it. It might be doing a yoga or Pilates class away from it. Mm-hmm. And that actually helps their mental capacity that they're not always in that same environment. That might be individual. They might partner with a friend. They, even some cases, it might be that people like to talk post their performance so you can buddy them up as such with other people to be able to go out and have a just a relaxing drink and just chill out. And that might be something they do. Mm-hmm. But within that, we use metrics we use certain elements within that to make informed reason decisions. But again, with that informed reason decisions, it's individualized, has to be individual for that person. What recovery for one person may not work for another. One person might like to go and swim or, or something like that that helps them recover. Another person might look at, actually, I don't mind walking, or another person might go, actually, I'm really useful, I like yoga to do it. And it's looking at different elements, but also as well, giving them variety within that. Mm -hmm. So, Andrew, last question for you. Something that seems, at least to an outsider, is quite different from from traditional sports is the amount of risk that they take. I'm curious, you talk about a lot about psychology and the individual and communication. What have you seen as you move from soccer and rugby to Cirque du Soleil and how the athletes and artists handle that? that mental component. I would think that it would be a very different challenge to get themselves up for doing the kinds of risky things they do in these performances. Do you, and do you think there's anything that traditional athletes could learn from what those Cirque artists bring to that part of their performance? Um, that's a great question. And yeah, there's always learning. Um, from, from the risks that they do, yes, there are risks, but there's risks within it elements of anything anyone does in performance or high high um, cultural sport or high cultural performance. Um, actually, it's quite interesting that statistically, the injury rates within CERC, although there's high risk involved, is very low compared with major sports like soccer, rugby, American football, hockey, mm-hmm. uh, when looking at severity and risk. The actual numbers of our statistics when we compare them to other other possibilities or other things is actually very low. Mm-hmm. So yes, they, you, the wells there, high wire acts, aerial acts, uh, banking acts where they're like tumbling or throwing people in the air and catching them on the shoulders. The risks are high, but again, that is a learned skill. It's skill acquisition, mm-hmm. and it's making sure the training and the scheduling and everything within that is actually scheduled accordingly. And yes. You, like you see in hand balance or someone standing on something balancing 30 foot in the air and yes there's proprioception within that but if you look at that from another skill let's take American football ice hockey for instance we've got skaters now within some of our shows because some of our shows are now ice skaters we need to cross transfer and learn from each other um, it's important that that is utilised is learning off other people to actually make reasoned decisions, but also as well develop people in different ways. Um, and actually, again, going back, is looking at their strengths and weaknesses and improving them. Mm-hmm. And that's within any kind of high-performance um, high performance team or high-performance Cirque du Soleil, as I'm, I'm, I'm in now, is the actual the learnings are amongst each other. And from an injury perspective, yes, there's risks, but because they're so well tuned, they're so they repeat the same things, and they they actually train before the show and train regularly. 
they master their art as such. That's the most crucial element mm -hmm. is that training that culture and having everything around them to support that mm -hmm. and access stuff. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully that continued development will, will occur. Right. Terrifically interesting. Andrew, listen, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to be with us. Very much appreciate it. Wish you the best with the work you're doing there with Cirque du Soleil. Thank you. And thanks very much for inviting me. Absolutely. That was senior head therapist at Cirque du Soleil, Andrew Walker, formerly first team physiotherapist for West Ham in England's Premier League, of course, and as well with some rugby teams. Guys, we've got a few topics we haven't covered yet. For example, they're playing tennis in England right now. Anything interesting about that? They've just started. 15-year-old woman. Young girl, actually. 15. My God. Beat Is Venus Williams in the first yeah. round. Oh, Venus lost to a 15-year-old. Yeah. I knew she lost in the first round. Yeah, she lost to a 15-year-old player who um, just, again, I think it's the woman's first tournament as well. And uh, came up through the qualifiers, and uh, wow. you know, turns out this is an African American fifteen-year-old who idolized Venus and Serena growing yeah, of up. Of course, and it was looking after her career to some degree. I see. Yes, yeah. And so this was—it was just a big deal because you know we tend to forget about Venus sometimes, but she is a seven-time major winner, including right. winning Wimbledon five times. Well, she she apparently had four Grand Slams before this girl was, was born. born. So Coco, Coco got... Coco, four, one. Coco, one four Grand yeah, Slams. Yeah, she won yeah. them. Yeah, Coco right. Goff, or Coco Goff, um, is the 15-year-old, and uh, Venus, of course, is 39. It's It's... You know, I'd love that she's still out there playing, but it's... percentage, the biggest ever. <laughs> the age it's difference. Gotta be, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but let me just say, not the oldest player in the... In, it's, she's the oldest player in the women's draw. Not the oldest player in the men's draw, but, you know, um, it goes back to the old expression, you can't teach height. <laughs> right, so the right. oldest player in the men's draw, who's still in, is a guy by the name of Ivo Karlovich, or they call him Dr. Ivo. Um, the guy's six foot. 10, 6, yeah. 11, and serves at like 150 miles an hour. So right. I don't want to say he can barely move, but he can <laughs> he barely move. move. <laughs> but let me just tell you, he not surprisingly, he has the highest percentage of tie-break sets yeah, of anybody. Right. And on any given day, you ask, some people say, could any, you know, could, could Djokovic lose? Could Federer lose? Well, let me tell you, if Ivo Karlovich serves 90% first serves, he which would win. be unheard of. Yep. He could win the match against anybody <laughs> right. on any given well, day. Well, essentially, you have to have the the uh, his opponent has to fault or somehow lose their own serve. No, he, or that he wins in three tie breaks. He so could win seven six, seven, seven, seven six seven six. Don't no, you, you don't to, in no, a tie break? You can win seven six. You have to. You don't have to win well, any you have of to your win a point. Serve. You have to win a point on the opponent. Yeah. But, okay. No, you win one, one point. All no, right, no. I'm just saying. It's, this is an aspect of Wimbledon that's not not as much fun. So, by the way, I saw that Alex Zverev and Naomi Osaka are both out already. Are they not good grass court players? Because these are two of the top players in their individual sports. No, they're they're good players. Um, Naomi Osaka has had some up and down issues lately. You know, she self admits she had struggling with being the number one player in the world, and you know that could be lots of reasons: physical, emotional, training staff. You know, wow, it's great to be a young. Person and now the number one player in the world. Zverev, it's really disappointing, but people forget he's number four or five in the world. I believe what I'm about to say is true. I don't think he's ever made even the semifinal of a Grand Slam tournament. So he's one of those guys. He was the first guy to break through of the big three to win a Masters 1000 event, which is just below. But his performances in the majors has been extraordinarily disappointing. Matter of fact, I'm about to say something. It could be true. I'm not even sure. Matt can check on this that he's ever even made a quarterfinal. He's one of those 
Okay, so he's won good tournaments, very good tournaments, but has never really advanced far in a Grand Slam. One one time, a qu- made a quarterfinal one time. One time. So this, this, we've talked about this with golf before. We've talked about you could do the analytics. That's it's kind of expected number of Grand Slam wins uh, given the quality of a player and how often they're in contention. And you might, by doing that, suss out a little bit about this you know, really hard to get our hands around notion of clutch performance. You're suggesting you might be able to do that in tennis. We've never talked about it in tennis. Like how far a person advances in a Grand Slam well, tournament as a function of their age, that should be relatively steady. And you're saying this guy is underperforming. Yeah, well, not even a function of your age. Last I, I time mean, I checked, I no, no, I know, but I'm saying last time I checked, the number four seed is supposed to make it to the semifinals. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. the expected outcome of the four seeds. The one, two, three, and four, by design, don't play each other. So he's losing in every one of these Grand Slams to lower-rated players. And potentially, if he's not even making the quarters, he's losing to people potentially far outside, lower, yes, far right lower. Mm-hmm. So this would be, I mean, just take a and, simple and metric. Is- let's even just say we said, you know, let's take his rating... We don't even have to take us ready. They have power rankings they have for power, tennis. The thing is about tennis, let's just back up for a minute. Golf is is so, sort of very different. It's at the extreme end where the the players are better than each other, but really any one player can beat another on a given day. They're going down the list, I mean, we saw this, see this all the time in golf. Tennis is the most extreme in the other direction, where the yes gap no. between 1 and 10 is is On the men's side, on the not men's the side. women's on side. The side yes. On the men's side. Because but, certainly, of, but we're talking about the men's side. I mean, that's no, I know incredibly, that. you know, for a, for a number four ranked player to lose to a 10 is just, you just don't see that consistently, or you, you typically don't see that. Well, I think there will be a point, this would be an interesting question to look at. At some point, you know, I understand Alex Varev is very young, so I think he just turned 21. At some point, let's say he's played 15 Grand Slams, whatever the number is, at some point there has to be a mental aspect to this right. where he's underperformed in 15 consecutive Grand Slam tournaments. So at some point you have to say it's some combination of mental and physical. It just has to be. Could be. He's only 21. So, so give him some credit. Exactly. It is young, so we shouldn't make too much of these hasn't-done-it-yet kind of statistics. Um, Djokovic is the favorite. Is anybody surprised by how much of a favorite he is over Federer, for example? No. 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 Come no, on. No. Uh, you know, again, let's look back at the – I know it's not a long period now. It's a small sample. But, you know, you have to go back now six Grand Slams. I know it doesn't seem like a lot. It seems like a lot for Federer. You have to go back six Grand Slams for, for Federer to win one. Remember, up until the French, Nadal was going for the – uh, sorry, Djokovic was going for another Joko Slam or whatever they called it. He was going for four majors in a row. He was going to hold all four majors. So, you know, Federer hasn't won, I believe, in, since the Australian yeah. Open in 2018. So it may be done. In other words, he may, th- we may have seen 20 may be his permanent his pa- number. His, his permanent but number. But here's a question for you guys. Uh, is Djokovic more heavily favored in the Wimbledon than Nadal was in the French? No way. Not even close. Yeah, Not okay. even right. close. Good, good answer. No way. So, because you can't dismiss the eight-time champion Federer. I mean, I'd say it. Federer had almost no chance to beat, let's say, Nadal at the French. He just wasn't going no. to. Djokovic had a chance, but, you know, Theme beat Djokovic, and Theme had no chance. Both Nadal and Federer definitely have a chance against Djokovic. And by the way... Nadal just had no competition in the French. Not really. And let me go back again. Forget about just Nadal and Federer. 
If you told me, I'll make up a name of a guy who beat Djokovic at Wimbledon four or five years ago. If you told me Sam Querrey, who you guys probably don't even know, an American-ranked player, somewhere around 30 in the world, six foot eight, Mm -hmm. hard serve, can return the ball. If you told me John Isner beat Djokovic, would I be shocked? You'd be like, okay. No, this kind of thing happens. Grass. Grass you got a makes six things, foot eight yeah. to six foot ten guy. You told me Kevin Anderson, who was in the finals two years ago. You told me he beat Djokovic. So it wouldn't because, shock me. So in on the clay in France, in the French Open, a hard serve just gets stopped when it hits the clay, and so it doesn't have any of that. It's a great power. equalizer. It's about angles. It's about fitness. It's about right. strategy. And so, and you have to hit. You you'll like this. It's n times p. Yep. You have to hit a lot more balls. Yep. Djokovic hits every ball a little bit better. It'll add up over a five-game match, five-set match. Okay. On the baseball front, I, I, I'm kind of coming back to it after having been away for a couple of weeks, and I'm struck by how few interesting races there are at the moment. I know we're not even to the actually. Break, there are a few. The, the American League looks pretty sewn up, not sewn up. Not, I, mean, I mean, obviously, there's wild card is, races uh, that matter. The Yankees have taken a nice lead. Of course, the Red Sox are a terrific team. The Rays are good, and they'll be fighting. But almost every all the divisions in in the American League are at least the Yankees are the tightest one, and they're five and a half. Now, the other two are so, sevens. So something so, will, something will close and change between but, now and the end of the but year. But take a look at the National League Central. That's the one. That's one out of remarkable. Six. Remarkable. And not only that, the team that's in the last place in the in the Central, which is the Reds, 30, 39 and 45, they're only five and a half games out of first, although they have a whole bunch of teams to climb over, which is an underappreciated problem. Right. They have the best, well, not the best, but their second best run differential. So in the, second to the Cubs, who, yeah. who should be winning, they have a plus 47. The Brewers are minus three, so they actually have been outscored by their opponents. So you're saying the, so the Brewers are leading that division by one over the Cubs, right. and there's a 50-run differential. Look at the Reds. That should be look about the, five at, wins, by the way. Look at the Reds. That's right. So just to put it on some scale, 10 runs is about a win. So we're looking at about a five-run Accidental or, or five win, yeah. five win kind swing. of swing by by you know the, their sequencing and obviously if you rack up a lot of runs in one game that doesn't can't but, win it by so more than me, once. Let me just say with this for a second. So if you forecast, if you go to Fangraphs and ask their projected number of wins end of season, Cubs are at eighty six, whereas Milwaukee, well they're just eighty five. Eighty five. So yeah. that's interesting. They're one game back and there's only one game forecast difference. We don't know what's going on with like strength of schedule and stuff in there. Yeah, the only thing I was going to bring up with baseball is you know. I know that I'm not actually, at this point, I feel pretty good that the Yankees will not be caught by the Red Sox. I think, I, I feel pretty good about that. However. It's early. I know. Well, it's not that early. It's past the halfway point of the season. I feel, you know, again, you go back to Ten what games. would the Yankees have to play? What would the Red Sox yeah. have to play? The math is troublesome. What are, what are, what are the famous collapses, though, in baseball Red history? Sox. Red Sox. 1978. Collapse. Red Sox. 1978. 14 games. In the middle of July. Middle of July. Yep. Wow. In fact, okay. I remember it because I attended a Fenway Park game on that day. Oh, really? I was in baseball. I was at baseball camp in Massachusetts, and they took us on a field but, trip. And in fact, people don't remember this because everyone talks about the lead as being fourteen games. But actually, the Yankees won that afternoon, so they were fourteen and a half games ahead right. of the Red Sox. And the Red Sox won that night, so they don't kind of square behind. these things you mean up. Behind. behind the Yankees, behind. Were behind. The Yankees were, and so, but the Yankees actually had a fourteen and a half game lead over the Red Sox. I mean, the Red Sox had a fourteen yeah. and a half game yeah. lead over the Yankees, and they collapsed. But I wanted to comment on something else, which has changed since nineteen seventy eight. So. We're also one game away from possibly losing to the Red Sox, and here's what I mean. The Red Sox could very easily end up as the wild card. They're only a game yep, or two out of that. Go. 
They win that one-game series, and all of a sudden they play the best team in the American League, which could be the Yankees. How confident are you that in a head-to-head matchup, forget the regular season, in a head-to-head matchup that the Yankees are going to beat the Red Sox? And the Yankees pitching doesn't look extraordinary by any measure. So that was my point. You've given me something to hope for. No, that's not nice. (laughs) Uh, But take a look. Let's look at the National League East. That's a fun. We've got the Phillies. You've got the Atlanta Braves and and the Nationals. The Nationals have come on fantastically. A couple weeks ago, they looked like they were not playing well, well below expectations, although their underlying fundamentals seem to be better. They had better run differentials, their, their, win, sh- their, win, their war was higher than their, their actual wins on the playing field, but they've come along strong, and they made, they're making it a, three, a three-team race for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, a lot of excitement in the National League. So, well. a, a couple of details in baseball that come, I, I, so, and Matty D gave us a rundown, of course, but some fun little, some fun little facts in there. So, Clayton Kershaw had never given up a left-handed home run in the regular season in his career. That's just on oh on a curveball. That's a detail I didn't have there. So he had never given up a left-handed home run regular season curveball. That's a Do lot you know of, what his curveball looks like to a left-handed hitter? You know, it's ridiculous. That. I mean, that guy's—it's just an insanely moving pitch. So he's, and it's hard he's to a, see. He's a righty, so the curveball's coming in on him. Is that right? So a le- no, he's a no, he's a lefty. So he's the a lefty. Going so, away so from what, and it's it's just it's very hard to predict where. It, Okay. When a pitch is moving away from you, it just you can't time it, can't okay. make sense out of it, and his is the best in the league. By the way, so. the thing that caught, catches my eye about the National League especially, without looking at the standings, although I've been tracking this, how many teams in the National League right now do you think are between 40 and 44 losses? Just guess. Well, there are 15 teams. Yep. Between 40 and 44 well, losses. Well, that's about halfway. 40 and 44 is like a 50-team, 50 50-percentile team. Uh, 10. Right? A so, lot of them. So well, the answer is a bunch. Yeah, the answer is 11. Okay. Yeah. So, it's a fat and, part of the normal distribution there. Yeah. <laughs> no. That's this, a lot this more. Is, there's, all, there's a ridiculous amount. I mean, if you eliminate the Braves, the Dodgers, and in this case, the Giants, every sing, and the Marlins. And the Marlins. Every single other... T- and the Mets. But there's, <laughs> four, there's 11. I've named four teams. Yeah. Thing. There's every other team. This is why the wild card is so beautiful. Yeah. We're sitting here at the halfway point in the season... Everybody's in it. Yep, <laughs> they're all within like yep. two or three games of each other for that. For Except the for the couple card. teams that yeah, are absolutely out of handful, it. But handful. even those teams, listen, Miami Marlins—they're horrible. Yet they can just crush a team on a couple of in a couple of games. The the, the in the American League, the, the Orioles are terrible. They they went some something like twenty-two innings in a row without giving up a hit. I mean, without giving up a run, mm-hmm. winning ten to nothing yeah. in twelve. Yeah, I mean, ridiculous. That's and that's of... that's the worst team in the American League. Tell me about this two-way player that's just come up, Brendan McKay. Brendan McKay. So uh, you know, this is the idea historically with baseball teams. You 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 forced a player to Americans at least to, to pick one, and these are college players typically. Pick, pick you pick you have to pick pitch one. Or a position you either pitch or you or you position player, and they figure out which you know is your the better hope for you. And obviously, you know, pitchers are rarer, but they're more they're more unpredictable. So it's a, it's actually a tough analytics decision. I mean, what do you do with a guy who plays both very well? What do you do? Well, how well can you forecast? And they have a tough decision to make, but they usually make that and. The, McKay was damn good at both, and he was, they're essentially letting him do both. And it's the Rays, of course. The Rays are at the f- 
forefront of analytics. I mean, that's we, saying something in baseball, given that yeah. there are a lot of teams that are investing a lot in analytics. But they also have less of the baggage. Um, we talk about that. And we talk, I mean, one of the things about the Moneyball story is about the analytics bumping against the tradition, right? And we've heard lots of people talk about that in other sports. That that's a that's a problem. We just heard them talk about that in the stats bomb with soccer. How do we teach the coaches to do something different? I think the Rays have a lot more to gain and less to lose. I mean, they're a, they're a low sport, low payroll team, and they've got no attendance, and they've got to take chances. And I think they are risk. They are not risk averse the way other teams would to try things that are different. And this is different. So, Adi, I've asked you this question before. Let's let's just pretend for a second that this player could be in the ninetieth percentile, both as a pitcher or as a hitter. Which of the t- and and let's imagine again. I told you that. Let's say that's a fact. Yeah. It's not a fact. But let's pretend it's a fact. Which would you rather have? Would you rather play him, if you could only play him either as a pitcher or as a hitter, which is more valuable? Let's say in terms of wins above replacement. Would you rather have him be, a let's say, a number two starter as a pitcher, or do you rather have him be the second best hitter on your team? Well, um, that's a tricky one because the hitters play every day, and it has to do with gap, I would guess, um, between who would be replacing them and what the value is behind that. And Well, let's uh, make an assumption then, because I would think this is a known thing. I would think given how precisely we can run analytics yeah. in baseball that you should be able to say a 90th percentile player is more valuable either as a position player every day or as a pitcher. And I, that surely is a known thing. Well, I think that it, uh, my gut would say that, that a 90th percentile as a pitcher is more valuable. The problem with that is it's a, you have to integrate that into the future, and I think you're less likely to stay a 90th percentile pitcher into the future than you were as a hitter. Why is that? That's interesting. Well, arm trouble. And it's just a, it's a trickier mechanical, biomechanical construction. Okay. And these players who seem to do it year in and year out are extraordinarily rare. The Kershaws, oh. the Verlanders, yeah. even the Cole Hamels, who's been doing this forever now. How do you find these pitchers? It just doesn't happen. Sabathias. You, it's, a, it's a constant flame up, flame out. That's really interesting. And so that would push... I mean, so you can kind of put, if you had to bet on where this guy's, what this guy's doing five years from now, six years from now, you're you gonna, bet hitter. You're going to bet, you bet hitter. hitter. Yeah, I mean, take someone like, say, Bryce Harper, who's, who got this gigantic contract and he's won MVPs and he's got all this talent. He's having what you would call a very subpar season for him. He's got 15 home runs. He's got a, uh, on base percentage of about 360 and he's got a slugging percentage or OBP, uh, In the uh, low OPS, about 800s, right? Yeah. So what is that? You know where it puts him? Probably somewhere around the 90th percentile, 85th to 90th percentile. <laughs> right, Damn right. valuable. Even using traditional metrics, yep. by the way, he's targeting a 3,100 to 110 season. Yes, exactly. So I just want to say, but he's right, doing, he's most doing, people are like, he's oh, getting good value. Like he needs a ni- 900 OPS. No. no. I'm, I'm saying if, he, if you told the Phillies right now he was the 90th percentile player for the next 13 seasons. <laughs> the Phillies would say, all I'll right, not the, so bad. Right? So, but by the way, we're not even talking about Otani. And he was the two-way player we were talking about last year. Yep. And, of course, he's not pitching this year. So he's this not. Makes your point, this makes your point very nicely. So the other issue, the thing is, is which you know which team should pick up these two-way players? And it's it's only been so far the American League teams because you can't because they can use them as the DH. But I have to say, I don't. I think that it's the value is misplaced. I think they got it backwards. I think the NL should be using them because having a pitcher who can actually hit is an incredible value. Yeah, that's incredible. A dead out in the third inning, second inning, right. every fourth. I mean, the whole 
trouble you have to work around mm-hmm. a horrible hitting pitcher. I mean, not, not just 200, like zero. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. destructive beyond belief. And the problem is, of course, you can't, unless they can play another position, you can't use them the other other days. And so, but listen, this guy McKay was a, an amazing center fielder. They're not even thinking about using him in the outfield. Yeah, of course. That's really interesting. By the way, one more word on Tampa Bay. Maddie tells us that they're exploring playing in Montreal. After there is Montreal. a discussion it's on like, that. Let's bring no, I mean, nobody's in goes to the games in the so win, in, in the summer. Some, it's so hot, and everyone yeah, clears out. Montreal, what a wonderful idea! It's a great it's idea, a fantastic idea. idea. Do you think they still miss baseball? The Expos, the old Expos, they miss it up there. That's such a strange concept doing baseball in Montreal. But anyway, all right, fellas, we need to take the corner and head into the home stretch. It's Warden Moneyballs over under. So, Matty D brought us some over unders in here. What do you got, Eric? What are you seeing? Well, let's start with a sport we did have, we've talked about a little bit in the last half hour. Let's talk about tennis a little bit. And so let's start with the favorite at Wimbledon, Novak Djokovic. We've got an over under of obviously a half. Um, will he win Wimbledon? So, if you want to go over, if you want to, if you think he's going to win, you'll go over. You don't think he's going to win? You'll go under a half. I'll start with Professor Adi Weiner. Oh, I have to start. Okay. Well, the odds are minus one hundred five. Taking care of the under round, he's the favorite. Yeah. So I'm going to go with the favorite. Yes, yeah. Djokovic. Yes, he will win Wimbledon. Yeah, I don't have I don't have reason to go anywhere other than with the odds here. So sure, I'll take over as well. I think I'm going to go over as well. I think he's unfortunately I'm not a huge Djokovic fan, but on this surface, I, I think he's the heavy favorite. Um, I, I like Djokovic as well. We've talked a lot about the NBA. Let's start actually with an interesting team, which is the Nets. So the over-under Matt put for us here, which is an interesting one, is .5 Nets playoff series wins. Now, just to remind everybody, they lost to the Sixers in the first round last year. They were the sixth seed. Um, we talked about them picking up Kyrie Irving and uh, DeAndre Jordan. They got Kevin Durant, but he, let's assume he's not going to play at all next season. Although you could bring that into your calculus, maybe he comes he back play for, the, he, for the playoffs. Maybe he comes back. Is for there the a rule about that? You mean you can no, but no. Okay. Just, just recap the top four teams. You have to beat one of these four teams yes. or a team like so them. The Bucks. So the Bucks are Toronto. One. The Sixers and the Celtics, and probably the Celtics. The Celtics well, are going to be very, last year's top four. Yeah, last, last no, year's. So let's just look how they've changed. So Toronto is the one we don't know because Leonard may or may not come back to Toronto. Look, you have to do you a have lot to do of all integration. The integration. No, no, no. Let's talk, <laughs> no, no. Let's also say there is a possibility of someone else getting injured on the team. Yep, they don't make the playoffs at all. Which would mean, by guarantee, they won't have one series. I'm looking win. forward to um, listen to Cade start. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll take I'll take him to win one. Sure, why not? Um, I, I'm not I don't I'm not I'm not a Kyrie Irving fan, but he's got talent. Clearly, they were they had a very solid team last year. That's going to continue to develop some, and I do believe those somebody from those top four are going to drift down. At least one of those teams is going to drift down. Yeah, this. Yeah, so I, I go next. So here's mm-hmm. the challenge I have. I think the only way that it happens is if they are a top four team. So I don't think they're going to if so I'm going to go under because I don't think they're going to be a top 4 team. I don't think they're better than the Bucks, I don't think they're better than the Sixers. If Kawhi Leonard, I don't think they're better than Toronto and I, it's right on the knife edge. I'm going to go under. I think the under is a good bet. My instinct would be to go under on this, but my nephews are diehard Brooklyn Nets, they live right. around the corner, right. and they love to go to the games, and I don't want to root against Net, them. The nephew rationale. The like nephew it. rationale. Yeah. So, Tal and Aaron, I'm right behind okay, you. Good, good, good. That's very nice. The last one. <laughs> so, the Yankees are currently 10 games ahead of the Red Sox. I love That's it. It's great. <laughs> so, over under, 10 and a half, that the Yankees finish 
that many games ahead of the Red Sox over under. So I will go first. I, this one's shooting fish in a barrel. As a statistic, I'd love to say yes, but come on. No. I'm going under. And there's, I mean, I could start listing all the statistical principles that would suggest that the answer is going to be under priors, regression to the mean, all kinds of effects. Um, I'm going under. The Yankees will not end up 11 games ahead of the Red yeah, Sox. I'm going to agree. That's the that's the statistical bet. You know, it's funny. We had an over under in the beginning of the season, which was 95 and a half wins for, uh, above over under for each team. Right. And I knew that I thought one of them would do it, but I didn't know in advance. You did say one, but you didn't know which <laughs> How one. How am I supposed to do it? And so I, it was hard hard bet to get. But I wouldn't go. Ten games. Do, does, no. does baseball have any tradition of resting players? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and that you have to build that in That's as well. Big, it's not or, huge. It's not just resting players. Let's say the Red Sox for a moment are out of it. Maybe they bring up a bunch of young players in September and give them right. more playing time. Now that, that leads the to the problem. They that tend goes to do well, direction. but you know they don't really rest because there's individual competitions that they're all in for various well, yeah, titles. And but also they're in for the wild card. I, mean, I don't yeah. know why. Yeah, and the, yeah, the Red Sox to, are going to be fighting for that. But the Yankees have to worry about home field against you the get, Astros, yep. for example. I'm tempted to take the over just to make it interesting. In fact, I'll take the over just to make it interesting. Oh, but, but, we'll but let Shane come in and weigh in on it. It's knife edge, guys. It's knife edge. Fangraphs have the win totals projected at 190. By the way, we so don't it's, do it's, these it's randomly. Right these aren't these random. Are very we good. set these over-unders <laughs> to make it interesting. But by the way, us Yankee fans around the world, thank you, Cade Massey. <laughs> I, don't <laughs> I, come, we, I don't come up with a lot of pro-Yankee material around That's why here. we thank you. you know, it's, <laughs> I, th- I had to give you guys a bone. All right, fellas, that has been Wharton Moneyball again. We do this every Wednesday, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. You guys always here to welcome, welcome, welcome to join us here. Daniel, Daniel Bruno, thank you for running the board. Matty D, thank you for running the whole show. For Audie Weiner, for Eric Bradlow, for our missing colleague and friend Shane Jensen, for Cade Massey. Appreciate your listening to us. Come back again next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.